tonight in 1 Kings chapter 20. And you recall that as it we're at this time of uh, Israel's history, that it's very dark days for the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking and focusing on the house of Israel. That's what 1 Kings has been focused on. Um, and we've seen that ever since their first king, Jeroboam, was on the scene, he plunged the house of Israel into idol worship. And as you look at the house of Israel during this time when they would split away from the house of Judah and, and the uh, tribe of Benjamin, those are the two southern tribes that make up the house of Judah, after the reign of uh, Rehoboam, um, they would do that. And we know that uh, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Um, Solomon led the nation in its greatest peace and prosperity. Then his son Rehoboam came and was the uh, king of Israel. The nation was united at that time, but then eventually under the reign of Rehoboam, the 10 northern tribes would split away because of the heavy taxation that um, Rehoboam was promising is gonna continue to the nation. So uh, Jeroboam is the first king, um, as he was told, you have 10 inheritance, the 10 northern tribes, and they belong to you. And if you follow after me, the prophet told Jeroboam, then you will be established, but Jeroboam didn't. And he plunged the nation, the house of Israel, into idol worship. And when you look at the succession of kings in the house of Israel, there were 19 kings, and every single one of them were wicked kings, were idol worshipers. And so it's really, it goes from bad to worse. And at this time, we see that Ahab, he is the king of Israel. He has plunged the nation deep, deep into Baal worship. Uh, he has made Samaria up there in the Samaritan mountains, the capital of the house of Israel. He built a temple dedicated to Baal there. And he has a wife, Jezebel, that she is also very much involved in idol worship. She is a violent woman, a very wicked woman. She has already killed, as we have seen, some of the prophets of the Lord. Uh, and she also came against Elijah. And so during this time that it's dark in the nation, the Lord brought a light, that is Elijah, that fiery prophet. And we know that Elijah, in chapter 18, of course, that he issued that challenge to the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. And we uh, looked at that, and of course it was Elijah that would uh, call on the Lord to bring down fire, to consume the sacrifice, and that's what happened. And he demonstrated that the Lord, that truly he is Lord. And the prophets of Baal would be killed down in the valley of Jezreel. And it was a great mountaintop experience and victory for Elijah as uh, he had that victory over the prophets of Baal and showing that the Lord, his power and demonstrating his power, his fire would come down from heaven. But we know that it was last week that we saw that Jezebel would threaten uh, Elijah. She would say that what you did to the prophets of Baal and having them killed, I'm going to do to you, Elijah. And Elijah took off from the northern part of the country 400 miles down to the mountain of God to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, and there he's in a cave, he's defeated, he's discouraged, um, he's just ready to give up, and the Lord would come to him and speak to him and say, what are you doing here, Elijah? And recall that as we saw in chapter 19 last week, that it was uh, the Lord speaking to Elijah, but in the cave that Elijah was in that there was a mighty wind, there was an earthquake that shook the mountain, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the earthquake, he wasn't in the fire, but 
in the still small voice of the Lord, he spoke to Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing here? And, and once again, as we looked at that chapter, as we journey through life, and you recall that it was the angel that woke Elijah up and said, Elijah, wake up and eat, for the journey is long. And the journey can seem long in our lives, and it's important that we eat of the word of God, that we hear the, the still small voice of the Lord. And so last week was an important study because we can all go through defeat and discouragement or even fall into depression to one degree or another, and it's very real, but we saw some of the things that may cause us to fall into those kinds of emotions and, and attitudes and mindsets. And then we also saw some things last week that we went over to help us during those times. So I hope it was a blessing to you and, and very much an encouragement to you. And, um, and if you weren't here, I would encourage you, if you feel like that's something that could benefit you, to download it from our website or to pick up a CD or sign up for a CD. Uh, there are new information desks that's out there uh, in the foyer area. So that's where we left off. And the Lord told Elijah that, Elijah, I got things for you to do. I want you to go and anoint the, uh, the prophet Elijah. He was going to take the mantle from Elijah. And uh, we will see that happening in just a few chapters, actually, as we move into Second Kings. And then also there were some other things that Elijah is going to be finishing up in his ministry before he's going to be taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. So chapter 20 now. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. And then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. So here is Ben-Hadad. He is the king of Syria up north. And at this time in the history of uh, the ten northern tribes, the house of Israel, Syria is their main enemy. Syria is the one that they're having constant wars with. The king of Syria with 32 other kings come and they besiege Samaria. Now remember that Samaria is the capital of the house of Israel. And they circled the city. They would shut the gates, the king. They uh, would have their troops outside of the city walls of Samaria. And nothing is coming in. Nothing's really going out. And the king, Ben-Hadad of Syria, makes these demands. He starts to say uh, that, Ahab, all that is yours is mine. And for some reason, Ahab says, okay. Why he says, okay, and, and they're pretty big demands. I mean, your gold, your silver, your wives, your children, they're mine. And it was Ahab who would say, okay, they're yours. I'm going to give in to the demands that, that, um, that you are giving and asking for. And perhaps the reason that he is, is maybe he's afraid that with the Syrians surrounding the city that the people are going to begin to starve. He wants to, to you know, somehow make appeasement to the king of Syria. And, um, and so the enemy coming and making these demands. As we look at this, and as we go through this chapter, one of the things as a Christian is, I was thinking about this even as we were singing, that the Lord is all that we need, and he's our portion, and, and he has given us victory, hasn't he? And as you read the, the book of Colossians in chapter 2, it tells us that he's wiped out the handwriting of requirement, that is, because of the death of Jesus on the cross and his shed blood for you and for me, that we're no longer under the bondage of Satan. And we talked about this on Sunday in our study of 1 John, 
that it is Satan that he's called the God, the little g of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He comes along and he is the one that is the ruler of this world system because John is telling the Christians, don't have a love for the world. That is the world system, the world's philosophies and ways. And we know that Satan, he blinds people, he, he holds them in bondage, um, and he is one that enslaves people that don't belong to Jesus Christ. And you and I that have given our hearts to Jesus Christ, we're free from that. We're free from sin, we're free from the enemy, we have victory. And so Colossians chapter 2 telling us that because the handwriting requirement has been blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then he goes on, Paul the Apostle, saying to that church, having wiped out, or that is, uh, having, uh, that is defeated, making a spectacle, disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle out of them. In other words, that the principalities and powers, the enemy and, and his hedgemen that, that join in with Satan, that try to come against us and war against us. And spiritual warfare is very real, isn't it? Because Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6 that, that we're to be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God, and to resist the wiles of the devil, that he throws those fiery darts at us, that we are to be ones putting on the whole armor of God, because our battle isn't with flesh and blood, but with against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. So even though we have victory because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, Satan has no direct authority over you as a Christian. He still will war against you. He will still try to pull you into the world and the world's uh, seduction and, and ways and pleasures. He'll still try to get a foothold into your life to where he'll bring bondage, he'll try to blind you. He'll still war against you. And one of the things that Satan will do is, is he'll come and try to rip you off, trying to rip you off when it comes to your family, when it comes to your children, trying to deceive you. He's a liar. And so we need to remember that he's been disarmed. And it's a military term that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 2, saying that he's been stripped. It's the same thought that when the Romans went in and they conquered a city, that they would disarm and make a public spectacle of the enemy. They would strip them naked and make them parade through the city that, or, you know, the area that they conquered. And so here is the truth that's given to us. But as Christians, as we bring it home a little bit closer for us tonight, that he will try to rip you off and he will bully you. And, and that's what he will continually do. And that's what the enemy is doing with um, Ahab here, the king of Israel. We continue reading verse 5. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speak Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. So the demands become more. And whatever is pleasant to you know the king, that the servants are going to take it, and um, it's going to belong to the king of, of Syria. So again, as we look at this, know this, that the enemy will always demand more. He always wants to take more. He always wants to rip you off more. He's not happy with just a little bit, but he will come along and he will try to seduce you into the world. 
He will continue to try to get a foothold in bringing the vision in your family or in your marriage. He's just going to demand more, and that's the way of the enemy. So that's what here the king of Syria is doing here as he gathers his forces against the house of Israel. And so verse 7, the king of Israel called to the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. And therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king that all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. And so Ahab is counseled by his elders to resist he starts to show a little bit of backbone, and he would see this, the demands of the king of Syria as a total loss of sovereignty for the nation. I'll give in some, but I won't totally. And listen, don't ever have the mindset of, well, I'll give in to the enemy, I'll give in to the world a little bit, compromise with the enemy. But know this, he isn't going to compromise with you. He wants to completely put you into bondage and into captivity completely to deceive you and ruin you and wreck you and make you ineffective you know in your service to the lord and and that's what the enemy does he doesn't compromise so here is uh ahab the king of israel he says listen can't you know compromise in that way i'm not going to do that and and uh, so war is going to come, as we read in verse 10, Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. So Ben-Hadad says, We're going to stomp all over you, Samaria. And we're going to get you, and there's going to be nothing left. And it's interesting what the king of Israel says in verse 11. He says, let not one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. In other words, don't you be boasting as you're putting on your armor. You don't boast about victory till you take it off, and the victory has been. And so here is again Ahab that's showing some backbone and, and some courage here as he sends that word back to Ben-Hadad. So war is going to happen here in verse 13, um, or actually, let's go to verse 12. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard the, this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, uh, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. And suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. And then he said, Who will set the battle in order? And he answered, You. And then he mustered all the, the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. Uh, and after them, he mustered uh, all the people of the children of Israel, 7,000. So war is going to happen. It's Ben-Hadad that gets his army ready for this attack. Um, and it is the prophet that then comes to Ahab and says, You're going to have victory. This is not Elijah. This is not Elijah. The mantle has not been given to Elijah yet. And Ahab says, by whom? And, and how is this going to happen when victory is proclaimed by this prophet? Well, it's going to be the young leaders. And you're going to set up the battle, Ahab. You're going to attack first. And as I reread this, here's Ahab, this wicked king, 
that has plunged a nation deep into idol worship and the Baal worship. And the Lord comes along and says, Ahab, you're going to have victory. And this is really an example and, and an illustration of God's incredible grace because he's not doing it uh, because Ahab was a good king. He's doing it in spite of Ahab. God in his sovereignty does not want the nation of Israel right now to be defeated by the Syrians. But notice here that he says that Ahab, that you may know that, that he is the Lord. That's what the prophet says here in verse um, 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord. That's what the Lord's saying to you. So God's hand of mercy and grace is still reached out to Ahab. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we think God is angry and he's mad and he's just looking to you know, bring judgment. Now judgment is going to come to the house of Israel because of their refusal to turn to the Lord and repent and to, to you know, uh, come to him and to, to give their hearts back to him. They're going to continue in their idol worship, as we're going to see. So God is going to bring judgment to them. But right now is a time of grace. And Ahab has been able to, at this chapter, what we will see, he's going to see the hand of God working. What you and I need to do as we talk with those that we know and love and live with even perhaps or next to or work alongside of, that they don't know the Lord is continue to pray for them, continue to be a witness to them, not only in our words but in our lives, that they can see the reality of Jesus Christ working in you, that there's something different about you because the Lord desires for them to come to the Lord. And I know that if they continue that God will not always strive with man. There will be a judgment that will come to those who come to the end of their lives and don't give their hearts to Jesus Christ and surrender because God will judge sin. But we want to be a witness to them and, and we can be thankful. I know that many of us are sitting in this room that, Lord, you were so long-suffering and patient with me. And I went so long before I gave my life to you, Lord, and thank you. And so Ben, uh, ben Haddad's going to find out here that um, he's going to uh, be defeated by the mighty hand of God. And here's Ahab who has opportunity, and he won't take the opportunity, but he's given opportunity to see the Lord, that he is real and that he is working. So God's grace here that is shown in verse 16. So they went out at noon. And meanwhile, Ben Haddad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. And the young leaders of the provinces went out first. And Ben Haddad sent out a patrol and they told him, saying, Men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, If they come out for peace, take them alive. And if they come out for war, take them alive. And then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them. So here it is at noon. Here's Ben-Hadad. He's drinking with his 32 kings at the command post. It's noon. It's the middle of the day. He doesn't think anything's going to happen. And all of a sudden, there's some young guys coming out of Samaria, and he gets word, uh, you know, patrols gone out, and hey, uh, I don't know if this is serious, but King Hadad, you know, what's happening? These guys are coming out of Samaria. And uh, so... Ben-Hadad says that if they come out for peace, take them alive, but if they come out for war, take them alive. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? doesn't make sense at all. But remember, he's under the influence of alcohol. And he's not thinking straight. He's been drinking. It's at noon. And, and, and I'm sure the guys are saying, what? You know, if they come out for war, we're not supposed to kill them? Take them alive? And they're confused. It reminds us of what the New Testament says. As Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, he tells us not to be filled with wine, but we're to walk in wisdom, be filled with the Spirit. 
And it's very important for us that in our lives that, of course, alcohol and drugs will impair and, and um, you know, us to where we're doing things and saying things um, that uh, are foolishness. Uh, we cannot think right. Uh, but it goes so much deeper than that. So many families and people's lives have been destroyed because of alcohol and because of drugs. It is a huge problem in our nation. It's a huge problem, um, you know, all over our nation. And, um, and it's sad to see what alcohol does to an individual's life, what drugs does um, to families, to marriages. It's a destroyer, folks. So let's take heed to what the Word of God says. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Walk wisely. Be careful when it comes to those things. And I want to bring it again home a little bit closer, but when Paul's writing about don't be filled with wine, of course, obviously, we can sit here, of course, I wouldn't do that. But you see, don't fill your wine with anything that is going to cause you to act foolishly or not to be able to discern what is right and wrong or what is holy or unholy, what is clean and unclean. Make sure that you're taking in the things of God. Make sure that you're taking in the word of God, that you're sensitive to the leading of the Lord. So don't be taking in the world's philosophies and ways and being deceived by the enemy and all of this. And again, Paul talks about that a whole lot in Colossians chapter 2. Don't be cheated by the philosophies of the world and traditions of men, those things that are not of Christ, because it will cause you to live foolishly. What a blessing it is for us as Christians that we have the wisdom of God. And you see, living in God's wisdom is not just knowing God's word, but having it worked out in our lives. That we don't have to experience a lot of hardship and pain and and difficulty and serious and difficult consequences and repercussions because we can walk wisely with the Lord as we are just being obedient to him and as we're learning of him and as we yield our lives to him. So here he makes these, you know, dumb statements here. And um, we see that uh, he's under the influence, of course, of alcohol. And, and then as the, the uh, young leaders come out, the army follows them, verse 20, and each one killed his man, so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And so Israel gets the victory. Ben-Hadad, he flees. Uh, he um, is one that is able to uh, get away and to... Um, we see that as Israel gets a great victory by the hand of God. And then verse 22, And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. So the prophet comes back and says, Listen, Ahab, he's going to regather his troops. He's going to regroup. He's going to, in the spring of the year, he's going to come after you again. And know this, Christian, that the enemy will always come back and attack. He will always attack. As long as we're on this side of eternity, the enemy is going to attack, and he's going to attack, and he's going to attack. And when we go home to be with the Lord, it'll be all over with. But you see, here, you know, what really kind of sometimes concerns me is, is that it's taught this way a little bit or indicated this way that being a Christian is kind of like a playground, you know? Everything's going to be rosy and great and fun every day. It's a battleground is what it is, isn't it? 
And we're likened to a soldier for Jesus Christ. And again, having to put on the full armor of God because the enemy will do attack and he may retreat for a little bit, but he's going to regather and he's going to come against you. And that will continue on till the Lord takes you home to be with him. And so we see in verse 23, Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. It was the pagan belief of the Syrians at this time that the deities of the different gods over different nations, that they were limited geographically. And what we're going to see when we move into 2 Kings chapter 5, that Naaman, who is a Syrian general, he has leprosy, and he's going to come to Elisha, and he's going to uh, talk to Elisha. He had heard that he can heal people. Elisha says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be healed. And Naaman, this, this Syrian general, goes and dips in the Jordan River seven times. He comes out, and he's clean. He's healed of leprosy. And he comes to know that you know, the, Lord of, you know, the God of Israel is the true God. Wow, and he comes to believe the God of Israel. But it's interesting because it tells us in that chapter that what Naaman did is that he took two bags of dirt back with him to Syria. And again, he just had that mindset. He didn't understand that God was omnipresent, that he's everywhere. That not only is, you know, is the Syrians are going to find out that uh, they're thinking, well, he's, you know, the, the God of the mountains. His, Samaria's there in the hills of Samaria in the mountains. We've got to do battle in the valleys and in the plains because he's not going to be able to help them. And, and Naaman kind of had that mindset. Well, it, the God of Israel, he's the true God, but he's only in Israel. And we know that our God, that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. He's in our hearts and he's in this place. And just as he's with believers in other parts of the world that are gathering tonight at this time and other Christians that are gathering, having Bible study, praising God, that he's everywhere. And so we know that our God is the awesome God, created everything. He's not just the creator of the hills and and the mountains, but he's the creator of the whole world. He's the creator of the whole universe. And so they're thinking, we got to do this battle down there in, in the valley is what we need to do in the plains. Verse 24, so do this thing. Dismiss uh, the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And he shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Apec to fight against Israel. And so they're going to do battle. The battle is set. It's going to happen in the plains where Syria thinks that they're going to have victory. And the children of Israel were mustered uh, and given provision, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. And so here is, you know, Ahab, and he's got a few people. They're like a couple of flocks of little goats. And the Syrians are full of people all over the valley, all over the plain. It reminds me of, you know, the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And many of you know the story of Gideon, how it was the Midianites that had come and they were like grasshoppers all over the land and they had camels and they were stealing the harvest and, and the people of 
Israel at that time in Samaria were hiding in the hills and in the caves. And it was God that called Gideon. And Gideon first was reluctant, but then Gideon would blow the trumpet and to do battle against the Midianites. There was 135,000 Midianites on the other side of the valley. And 32,000 men came down to do battle. And here is Gideon and his men. They're greatly outnumbered. I mean, 135,000 to 32,000. And God says to Gideon, you got too many people. You tell the guys, whoever are afraid, you know, go home. You know, it's all right. And so it was 22,000 that left. They were afraid. And so here's Gideon with 10,000 men against 135,000 Midianites. And God said, you still have too many. So bring them down to the stream, and whoever cups their hand in getting a drink of water, those are going to be the men that you're going to use. And only 300 did that. And of course, we know that Gideon would have victory. It was the Lord's victory. The Lord brought that victory. He said, Gideon, I'm going to get the glory. And 300 men were used to defeat 135,000 Midianites. It's almost like this. You know, there's only a few of the Israelites here. And, and here's all these Syrians, and they're greatly outnumbered. And the Syrians, are, I'm sure, are full of confidence. Hey, we're in the plains. We're in the valley. We greatly outnumber them. We're taking it serious this time. We've got rid of the kings we replaced them with captains and we're not drinking and this time we're going to have victory Israel's greatly outnumbered and it doesn't look good but I want us to remember something that God plus one is a majority God plus one that is you is a majority and maybe you're in the workplace or maybe even in your own family you feel like I'm the only Christian in the workplace, everybody else is a non-Christian. It seems like I'm greatly outnumbered, and, and it's hard, and it seems like that I'm going to go down, and, and I'm going to be defeated, and uh, it doesn't look good for me, but you just trust in the Lord and know that the Lord will put you in places for you to be a light, for you to be used, but know this, that God plus one is a majority, and that, that you can trust in that and rest in that. And we've seen how God works on behalf of his people. You remember a few chapters ago that Asa, that he was facing there in the house of Judah, a million-man army from Ethiopia, greatly outnumbered, but he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord brought victory. And we can go and we can see example after example of that, and we can see how the Lord will work on behalf of his people. You trust in the Lord. What we will see again when we get to Second Kings is that the Syrians surround Elijah where he's staying and his servant, they're in this house. And the servant, he's saying, look at all those Syrians and we're going to be destroyed. And it was Elijah that said, open up his eyes, Lord. And the Lord was, allowed the servant to see all the angelic you know, creatures and the, and the fiery chariots that had surrounded the Syrians. And it was the servant of Elijah that was able to see that greater is he that is with us than he that is against us. And know this, the scripture also says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so just remember that you have the Lord. He will bring victory. He will fight the battle for you, that you just hang on to him. And things may seem bad in a situation that you're facing, that it seems like 
you know what, I'm in this valley, this valley of, of difficult circumstances, or I'm greatly outnumbered uh, in the things that I'm facing, but know that God is faithful and that his promises are true and that he is for you. So this is what they're facing in verse 28. And the man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That you shall know that I am the Lord. I have that underlined it once again. Ahab, that you will have opportunity to know that I am the Lord. You know, that's a phraseology that we see. And what's interesting is we see through the Old Testament particularly, we see how God would bring great victory on behalf of his people that were outnumbered when it came with Gideon, when it came to Asa, when it came to Ahab here in this instance. And there's so many other instances that we can look to. But it's interesting, this phraseology, that you may know that I am the Lord. We know that there's some future battles that are going to come up concerning Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. For example, Ezekiel 38, um, that is yet future. And as we look at the situation of the world, it's very interesting to see the alignments of those nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38 that are coming against Israel and, and making threats. And, and uh, it reminds me so much kind of the attitude of the Syrians here and how Israel's going to be destroyed. And of course, we know it's been an interesting week because the UN is having the leaders from the world come and speak at their general uh, assembly. And once again, the president of Iran makes his way to New York on Monday. He, in New York, begins to say that Israel must be destroyed and annihilated, um, making threats against Israel. And he spoke today, and maybe you saw it in the news, and it was just very brief, brief you know, mention of it, really, in our major news networks, Fox News, M NBC, MSNBC, any of the major news networks kind of reported on it a little bit that, you know, here's Ahmed Dinajad calling for a new world order, and that was kind of the mention of it. And now it's kind of buried. You can't even really find it anymore in the major news networks, even uh, as we look it up even tonight. And he just spoke uh, this morning. But I want to read something to you because I think you'll find this interesting. As Israel today is facing great threats and, and surrounded by so many of those nations that are wanting to destroy Israel. And, and here's an actual, what the major news networks won't tell you here in America, what Ahmadinejad, um, what he is saying in his speech. This is what he said. Iranian President uh, Ahmadinejad on Wednesday called for an end of hegemonic powers of the United States and Israel, whom he described as the uncivilized Zionists. He said the world would soon see a new global management by the 12th Iman, also known as the Mahdi and his deputy, Jesus Christ. You see, that's not what they're telling you in the major news networks. And he goes on, and this is what Ahmadinejad said, quote, God Almighty has promised us a man of kindness, a man who loves people and loves absolute justice, a man who is perfect human being and is named Iman Ahmadi, a man who will come in the company of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, and the righteous, he said, calling the, the Mahdi the ultimate savior. 
Achmedinejad said his arrival on earth will mark a new beginning, a rebirth, and a resurrection. It will be the beginning of peace, lasting security, and genuine life. And so Achmedinejad said the coming reign of the 12th Iman on earth will bring about an eternally bright future for mankind, not by force or waging wars, but through thought, awakening, and developing kindness in everyone. And um, the Iranian leader did not offer a specific timetable, but he did say that the sweet sense of the Mahdi's global reign will soon reach all the territories of Asia, Europe, Africa, and the United States. Here's the thing. This is what Shia uh, estacology says. And this is what Ahmadinejad and the mullahs of Iran believe. They believe that what the leaders of the Muslim worlds are to do is to go to war against the West and against Israel and to come against Christians and to come against Jews. And as this world upheaval starts and these wars start and violence start, then the Mahdi, the 12th Amman, will come up and he will help them and then he will usher in peace. That's what they believe. And see, as Joel Rosenberg and his blog that's reporting this and some of the others that are watching this, they understand that that's what's driving their foreign policy. And that's why Iran is seeking to develop nuclear weapons. And when the president of Iran and the mullahs and the military leaders are saying that Israel must be wiped off the face of the earth, they really mean it. And you see, most of the world leaders aren't taking it seriously, but Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, is. And he is taking it seriously, and he knows they, they mean it, and that's why they're developing nuclear weapons. And we, this little tiny country the size of New Jersey, we can't wait long enough you know, and allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon for us to be destroyed. And what took six years for Hitler to try to destroy the Jewish nation and destroying six million Jews is what he did, that Ahmadinejad, if he gets a nuclear weapon, will try to do in six minutes. And so he really believes that the 12th Iman is going to come, that he is to help the 12th Iman be coming forth as he starts these wars. And so that's what's driving their foreign policy. And Benjamin Netanyahu, if you're interested in these things, and I think as a Christian that you should be, and we should be watching and being discerning because the whole epicenter of Bible prophecy concerns Israel. And so it is Benjamin Netanyahu who is on his way. They just got through uh, with Yom Kippur, uh, the holiest day of the year. So the whole nation shuts down. And now that it's over, uh, that Benjamin Netanyahu's on his way to New York and he's going to address the UN General Assembly tomorrow. And it's going to be, it is believed, in direct response to what Ahmadinejad has been saying. And it is believed that perhaps that he is going to draw some red lines and uh, that he is going to say absolutely under no circumstances are we going to allow Iran to pursue a nuclear bomb. It was just a couple of weeks ago that Netanyahu said that Iran's only six to seven months away from having 90% of the materials to build a bomb. That we're in the red zone and time is running out. And so it is, you know, th these, these, you know, great threats that are coming against Israel, how it's all going to work out, only God knows. But we do know that Ezekiel 38 says that there will be this confederation of nations with Iran and with Russia and some of those other Islamic nations that have been in the news where the riots have been, 
such as Sudan and Libya and some of the others, that this massive invasion is going to come into Israel and God is going to fight on behalf of Israel. It is a war that has not happened. We know that Ezekiel 38 tells us it will happen in the last days and God will destroy five, six of those armies. He will deliver Israel and he says that they may know that I am the Lord. Same phraseology. That they may know that I am the Lord. It is also interesting that as you read Psalm 83, and if you haven't read Psalm 83 or can't remember it, you might want to read it, that there are some experts of end-time prophecy that perhaps believe that that might be even a prelude to Ezekiel chapter 38 because it talks about the immediate nations surrounding Israel and again that they come to take uh, make Israel a nation no more in this massive invasion. Now there are some who have said that that has been fulfilled in the Israeli Arab War of 1967 and 1973. And just a little side note, and then we're going uh, to we're finish the chapter. But there's been some reports, it was um, in the, one of the Israeli newspapers, um, that they are releasing some documents that the Yom Kippur War, in other words, the 1973 war, that happened it, where Syria and Egypt and the surrounding nations attacked Israel on Yom Kippur and caught them off guard, that the intelligence was incorrect and, um, and it didn't get to the prime minister of Israel. And they thought, they're not going to attack. Sure, they're threatening us. Sure, they've they're got this rhetoric, but they're not going to attack. And the intelligence was saying, yes, they are going to attack, and it didn't get to the prime minister. And uh, in that war, we see that Syria and Egypt broke through the lines and, and almost put an end to Israel, but God intervened. It's an incredible study to do and look at that we don't have time to go into tonight. And in Psalm 83... Some believe, no, that hasn't been really fulfilled because God says he will put an end to those armies that they may know that I am the Lord, that same phraseology. So here, the Syrians are going to be defeated, that you may know that I am the Lord. And we see in Ezekiel 38 and Psalm 83 that they may know that I am the Lord. But what my prayer is, is I bring it home a little bit closer once again for application for us is this, that as you're out there doing battle, as you're out there as a soldier for Jesus Christ, that as people see the reality of Jesus in your life, that you're being a light and there's a love of Jesus Christ and you're desiring to share, that they may know that truly that God is real because there's something different about you. And they're seeing Jesus Christ, you know, and what he has done in making you a new creation and giving you a new heart and a love of Christ that comes from you and sharing Christ with others. And so here is, you know, this promise given by the prophet. And again, we'll fill you in and um, what's happening um, because, you know, um, very interesting days in which we are living in. But as we continue reading verse 29, and they encamped opposite each other for seven days, so it was on the seventh day that the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. And the rest fled to Apec and to the city. Then the wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left, and Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. So Israel gets a great victory once again. Um, and there's victory that happens in the valley. They thought, yeah, he's not the God of the valleys. We'll meet in the valley, but then God 
gives them the victory. And I just want to say this. Maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, okay, Pastor, I'm in a valley. I'm just in this valley of difficulties and challenges and sorrow or whatever it might be. And I want you to know that God can give you victory. Maybe you're in a valley of discouragement. Maybe you're in a valley of, of just frustration. In a valley of, of you're wondering, Lord, how am I going to pay the bills? Whatever valley that you're in, know this, that God can bring victory. And that he loves you. And his promises, again, are true for you. So he brings victory in verse 31. Then his servant said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel, merciful kings, please let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at his word. And he said, Your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go bring him. And Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had uh, him come up in uh, into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Then Hadad said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. When Ben-Hadad should have been killed and destroyed, here is Ahab makes a treaty with them. He says, What's happened to my brother? Hey, he's my brother. Is he Okay. And they're looking for mercy, and the servants say, hey, he calls him his brother. Yeah, your brother's doing good. Let's go get him. And he comes out, and he makes a peace treaty with them. We'll restore the cities. You can set up markets in Damascus. But here's the thing, folks. Don't ever make a peace treaty with the enemy. Don't ever make a peace treaty with the enemy. Because we're going to see here in a few chapters is going to bring problems. Matter of fact, in the next chapter. And we're going to see that the enemy doesn't keep his promises. He's a liar. Don't make a peace treaty with the enemy. And that's what Ahab does. He makes a treaty with him. So, verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. It wasn't easy being a prophet, you know, in the ministry back in those days. And you're thinking, what is this all about? Here's a prophet. He says to his neighbor, hit me. And the neighbor, of course, doesn't want to hit him. So, hey, a lion's going to come and pounce on you and eat you. And that's what happened. So it is kind of an interesting insert here. But as you look at it, you know, his neighbor is probably one of the sons of the prophet. He disobeys God's word. He was supposed to strike the prophet. He wouldn't do it. So a lion comes and pounces on him. I will say this, that if you're disobedient to the Lord and the word of the Lord, it's saying that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's on the prowl and he will pounce on you. If you're one that is disobedient to the Lord and what he has for you and the way that he wants you to live and how to live. So he says the prophet departed and waited for the, or let's go back. So he found another man. And said, strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. 
And then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, uh, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy, here and there he was gone. And then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. So this prophet disguises himself. He sees the king. He says, Hey, I was in this situation. I was supposed to guard this guy. Um, and if he escaped and it was, I was supposed to lose my life or pay talent. And the king basically says, you know what? It's your fault. You've got to deal with it. You're going to suffer the consequences. And then he takes his disguise off, and Ahab says, oh, it's one of those prophets. And so the prophet says, because you let the king of Syria get away, your life's going to be taken away from you. And that's what we're going to see in the next chapter when we pick it up next week. And then we see that he goes back and... He is displeased. He's sullen. He's displeased. And here's the thing. The result of not obeying the word of the Lord and compromising with the enemy is going to be sadness and sorrow in your life, and you will be displeased. So follow after the Lord wholeheartedly. Experience that abundant life that he has for you and the joy, just as we've been talking on Sunday morning. How do we have joy? with close fellowship and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in the light, keeping his commandments, and loving our brother, right? Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, uh, what a chapter, and a lot in it, and I thank you that we can go through it, and I thank you that right now, that as we finish here, that as we close tonight, um, Lord, I just want to pray, first of all, of anyone who has not come, to you, Jesus, and surrendered our life to you. If anyone is here, you're listening to this message, and maybe you've never come to Jesus Christ and really surrendered your heart to him. My prayer is that you may know that he is the Lord, because his word declares it, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and sin has separated us from him. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus, you can give your heart to Jesus tonight because he is life. He's given you victory in what he has provided in dying on the cross for your sins. And he rose again. He had victory over sin and death. And if you're here tonight and maybe you've gone to church, you've gone to Bible study, maybe... Maybe you're here and you're just wondering about all of it. I want you to know that the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And that Jesus says, or the Word of God says, that if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and believe God raised them from the dead, that you will be saved. If you confess it, knowing that you need the Savior of the world. 
And you can do that right where you're sitting. You can pray, Jesus. I am a sinner. I'm separated from you, but now I come to you. I believe, Jesus, you died on Calvary's cross for my sins. And I ask that you would forgive me. And please forgive me. I confess that I am a sinner. I believe you rose again and you defeated sin and death. And so, Lord, I believe, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe in you. I surrender my heart to you. My life is not my own. I turn to you now. I, I turn away from the world and I give my life to you and to your hands. And thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for loving me. And if anybody prayed that prayer, anybody at all, or if you're listening on the radio, that, that you have the promise of the Lord, forgiveness of sin, that you be, have become his child, and that you have right relationship with the Father that only comes through Jesus Christ. But also, as we're just spending the next few moments and just bowing our heads and just closing the service, that if you're here tonight and maybe you've made a compromise with the enemy, Maybe the enemy has surrounded you and it's just attacking you. Or you feel like you're in the valley. That I want to pray for you. And know that God wants to work on your behalf. Know that God's promises are true. That he's your strength and your refuge. He's your high tower.